remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 20, the end of John 20, which is also our sermon text. Hear God's gospel to you this Lord's Day. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessings on our meditation of it. Lord, Father, we do ask that you would help us to believe and that you would rid us of our unbelief. We confess that we believe, but we ask you to help our unbelief. And do that by the power of your spirit, working through your inspired, living, and active word. We ask for this. We ask for this help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to John 20. Last, what, seven verses is it that we just read? Seven or eight? Uh, before we launch in, though, I just want to make a public uh, expression of gratitude for the Sunday school teachers. I really appreciate what you guys are doing, teaching our kids. So it's a blessing to me, it's a blessing to our kids that you all have volunteered to do that. Um, we're having a good time in our adult Sunday's class, Sunday school class as well. And I also want to thank the musicians. Thank you for helping us sing and glorify God in our music. John 20, we're going to walk through those last few verses, starting in verse 24. And today we come to the famous account of Doubting Thomas, the guy whose first name is Doubting, or that's, that's the reputation he has. Thomas has just suffered the profound loss of his friend, his 
rabbi, his teacher, his, his, his would-be Messiah, who was crucified just a few days earlier, leaving Thomas in despair, deep despair. He's called Doubting Thomas because he can't bring himself to believe what his fellow disciples are telling him about the resurrection of Jesus. We've seen him. And he says, well, I need to see him. So Thomas still has doubts because he wasn't with the disciples on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus showed up unannounced as he did here, as he does here, and, and he gives them his peace. The doors were locked and he shows up. And he sh remember, he shows them his wounds. So verse 24 of John 20 says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. In other words, he wasn't with them on the evening of that Easter Sunday a week earlier in that event recorded in verses 19 to 23 that we looked at last time. And that's important because what did the other disciples get to, to see and experience on that previous Sunday when Jesus showed up in their midst? Verse 20, if you look up a few verses, says they got to see the hands and the side of their Lord. Perhaps Jesus even let them touch his wounds. For some reason, Thomas wasn't there. But now a week later, on the following Lord's Day, he is there with them. And verse 25 says that the other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. He's, he's alive. So Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, that, that does, it, it sounds like a strong statement. I'm not going to believe. But is it fair to label this disciple doubting Thomas? To, does that characterize this man just on the basis of this response? Is, is he really being faithless here? Now, he certainly qualifies as 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 we all do, as someone who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's unbelief there. But is this demand to see and touch his risen Lord and God entirely out of line? Is it, is it really just completely unacceptable and unhuman and un, unchristian of him to say this? Let's put, Thomas, let's put ourselves in Thomas's shoes. He's been deeply disappointed in recent days. And he certainly doesn't want to allow himself to be disappointed yet again. He doesn't want to set himself up for another disappointment by believing something that just seems completely impossible. So do, do you resonate with that? Not wanting to set yourself up for yet another disappointment of some kind or another. Well, he wants proof, tangible proof that this is the real Jesus. And for Thomas, the most essential part of the real Jesus is that he really suffered. Thomas is suffering, and he's looking for the Savior who suffered. He's looking for the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied of, that Jesus himself, in Thomas' presence, said he was the fulfillment of, that suffering servant in Isaiah. Jesus made it very explicit that he was that suffering servant. The Messiah would suffer. The real Jesus has wounds. The real Savior has scars. 
And that's the Jesus Thomas wants to see. And so is it, is it really completely wrong to want to see and touch Jesus? Now, of course, I'm not justifying the statement, I will not believe unless I see. It does have elements of weakness, right? But is it completely wrong at the same time to want to see and touch? Don't you want to see and touch Jesus? Is it wrong that you and I know how Thomas feels? And not only know how he feels, but identify with exactly what, what his felt need is here? We've been taught to look at Thomas with indignation. Perhaps we've been taught to read this passage as if Jesus is looking down on Thomas in annoyance with a critical spirit. The main application often is don't be like Thomas. You know, have faith. Don't, don't, don't be like Thomas who didn't have faith. But is that really the message of this passage? I don't think it is. We need to question the assumption, first of all, that Thomas is some kind of modern skeptic with doubts about whether anything can really be known. We, you know, when we, we live in, a, in the secular age, right? And, and the secular age is sort of defined by this instinctive, almost knee-jerk doubt about anything, about all knowledge. One Christian thinker has called modern doubt an unwilled ambivalence. An unwilled ambivalence toward the possibility of any answers at all. It's, it's like a deep anxiety about whether there really are answers to any of the deep questions that people ask, that people have, that we all have. And so the fear of the, the secular skeptic is that when people give an answer, they're probably just giving an answer in the interest of power, control. But that's not the kind of doubt that Thomas has here. So he wasn't a modern skeptic you know, who needed a syllogism, an argument, a, you know, a scientific proof, if you will. That's not the kind of doubt that Thomas has at all. He has honest questions, questions that we're going to find out Jesus is happy to answer. And Jesus, just read the Gospels, Jesus is not always happy to answer all of the skeptical questions, Right? Uh, he just points out, no, you, you don't have faith. There's no way you're going to believe, right? Because you don't have faith at all. But with Thomas, he's going to actually answer his underlying questions. So Jesus isn't criticizing Thomas in this passage. He's answering Thomas. And I think that's going to become more clear as we go through. One preacher said that the ethos of this text is not indignation, but invitation. It's a, it's a text of answers for a believer who has serious questions. And Jesus is inviting Thomas. He's welcoming Thomas to draw near and find those gospel answers to his questions. Draw near to him. More specifically, he's inviting Thomas to draw near and find the answers where? In his wounds. In his wounds. Not anywhere else. So Jesus sees the grief in Thomas's statement, which is an outflow of the grief in Thomas's heart. 
And, and the doubt behind Thomas's statement in verse 25 isn't the stu- that stubborn skepticism of modern atheism. He, he's not, he, Thomas is not the, the ancient version you know, of, of Bertrand Russell or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris, just to name a few atheists of the last century or two. Not even close. No, Thomas was a follower of Jesus and a believer in Jesus. He trusted Jesus and followed him when most didn't. Not perfectly, not with the kind of unwavering faith that we'd like to see and have, but he was a believer in Jesus. He stuck with Jesus, in fact, through his ministry when many abandoned him. In John 24, remember, Thomas was the one who confessed faith in Jesus when Jesus was telling the disciples some very difficult, even devastating things. And you don't have to turn there, but at the end of John 13, Jesus had, he tells Peter that you're going to deny me three times. And then at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says he's, he's not even going to stay here. He's going away. Okay, this is bad news as far as the disciples are concerned. He's not going to be with them anymore. And everyone was confused by this upsetting information. But Thomas was the one who, sure, confused, still spoke up. The first one, he spoke up with some kind of hopeful, faith-filled response. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You see that? Thomas accepts the new reality. He doesn't pull a Peter and say, no, you can't. That's unacceptable. It's not a part of the plan. He just says, okay, we we don't know really what you're talking about, but can you help us here? And so it's a disappointing future as far as Thomas is concerned. But, you know, it's a future where Jesus is absent, but he accepts it. He doesn't understand it. And his instinct there is to ask Jesus to make sense of it for him. I don't get it, Jesus. What, what's, what's our next step? How do we do this? How do we go with you? Just tell us and we'll do it. Real faith doesn't always have all the answers. In fact, some, sometimes real faith acknowledges that it, in fact, does not have the answers, but it knows where to go with its questions. So real faith doesn't have all the answers. Oftentimes, real faith Mature faith acknowledges and knows when it doesn't have the answers, but real faith knows where to go with its questions. And Thomas is a man who goes to Jesus with his questions because Thomas is a man of faith, imperfect faith, but of faith. And so the question that Thomas has in chapter 20, verse 5, the question behind his statement, there's no question mark at the end of it, but the question behind his statement is whether God really did bring life out of death? Can, has God really brought resurrection to these circumstances? Has he resurrected this situation? Thomas needs the resurrected Jesus to be the Jesus who died about 10 days earlier. And that's similar to the question we all have. Can God, will God resurrect our circumstances? Can he bring his resurrection life 
to this situation? Can he bring resurrection life out of the death and the disappointment, the grief and the groaning that I experience, that I'm in? And if you're honest, you have doubts about that too, right? We, we all doubt whether God can really bring resurrection life out of this situation or that situation, out of this relationship, out of this trial. So Thomas was a man of sorrows, and he needed to know that it was indeed the man of sorrows who had risen from the dead. Thomas was suffering, and he needed to know that it was in, indeed Isaiah's suffering servant, servant who had risen from the dead. Thomas needed to see that God had brought resurrection out of crucifixion. A, a reincarnated Christ or some, some other, none, none of that would work. Only the resurrection of the crucified Jesus would do. To be convinced that God brings death out of life, Thomas would need to see the scars. He would need to get right to the heart of the gospel. At some level, Thomas was looking for a God who had experienced suffering and death. I'm not saying he had all that formulated, right? We don't always have the faith that God gives us formulated. Can't always put it on paper. And, but insofar as he was looking for such a God, he was a man of biblical faith because the God of Scripture, the one true God, is the God who subjected himself to suffering. Thomas's God, your God, my God, is the God who united himself with his fallen creation and experienced our pain, our groaning. He's the God who endured death. You see, our God is not an aloof God. Right? He's not far off. He doesn't keep his distance from us and our suffering. He has entered into it, and he has the scars to prove it. And this is the God that Thomas is looking for and deep down wants to confess and will confess. Suffering Thomas was looking for the God who enters into our suffering. And that's not wrong. That's biblical. So Thomas's faith wasn't perfect, but it was obvious. It was there. It wasn't absent. It hadn't evaporated, right? After all, in our passage today, we find Thomas where? He's assembled with the body of Christ. He's, he's with the, the church on the Lord's day. He hasn't given up. He's willing to see. He wants to see that the gospel message is true. He wants to believe. He's willing to believe. So he's there at, at church, at worship, wanting to hope, wanting to believe, and desiring more than anything to encounter his resurrected Lord and God who was crucified for Thomas. Notice he doesn't say it's impossible. I'm, I'm absolutely not going to believe it. He's, he's, he will. He wants to. He wants to encounter the Lord. That's what we need to see here. Not just that we don't just need to see the weakness in his faith. We need to see that the faith that was there is a, it is, is a desire to encounter, to experience Jesus. 
That's far, far different from the sort of skepticism of the secular age, right? So can you relate to Thomas? Do you wonder how God can bring life out of death? Do you struggle to see how all, all the things in the world and your life are really going to be for your good? Are you struggling to believe? Do you struggle to hope in the midst of difficulties that seem hopeless? Does the pain going on in you and around you make it hard for you to trust in God's goodness? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're faithless without faith. It does mean you're in a similar boat that Thomas is in. And so faith can exist alongside confusion and questions and debilitating pain. Faith is not pretending that trials are not as intense as they are. Faith is sort of daring to believe, daring to put your hope in Jesus in the midst of circumstances that don't seem to allow for anything except despair and doubt. What I, if there's one thing I want you to see in this text too, and the reason I'm trying to help us maybe read it in a new way, I want you to see that more than anything, how the grief of Thomas is met by the grace of Jesus. The grief of Thomas is met with the grace of Jesus, not with scorn, not with shame, but with grace. It's not met with indignation and exasperation and annoyance on the part of Jesus. It's met with grace and graciousness. Thomas has questions. Jesus has answers. In verses 26 and 27, the suffering servant Jesus helps his suffering servant Thomas. And the man of sorrows, Jesus, makes, he consoles his, his man of sorrows, Thomas. Thomas has grief. Jesus has grace. Look, look at verses 26 and 27. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, the first thing I want you to see is how well Jesus heard Thomas' statement. Okay, he wasn't there, but he clearly knows what Thomas said. And I want you to notice how specifically and how intimately Jesus answers Thomas. He gives a personal and direct answer to every part, to all four parts of Thomas' statement. So, so to see this, let's review. Let's go back up to verse 25. Let's review Thomas' statement. Thomas said four things. Number one, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. Number two, and put my finger into the print of the nails. Number three, and put my hand into his side. Number four, I will not believe. And now look, what, look how Jesus graciously responds to each of these four things in verse 20. He says to Thomas, number one, reach your finger here. Number two, and look at my hands. Number three, reach your hand here and put it into my side. Number four, do not be unbelieving, but believing. <laughs> you almost want to, maybe that's a little eerie, right, for, for Thomas, who, if he had remembered what he said when Jesus wasn't there. 
Jesus isn't looking down on Thomas. He's not giving Thomas a beat down. You know, some kind of spiritual lecture here. He's answering Thomas. He's meeting Thomas's grief with grace, which is what he does. That's, that's what he's inclined to do. He's not waiting to, to whack us, right? Like the old schoolmaster stereotype, just you know, waiting for you to do something wrong and whack your knuckles. That's not how Jesus is. Now, I used to, th- I mean, one way of reading this text and the way I've, I've read it before is that Jesus' answer was, was somewhat of a rebuke for Thomas's weak faith. Um, maybe you've read it the same way. And Jesus is here going line by line, repudiating Thomas in all four areas. But, but he's not confronting Thomas. He's, put, he's not putting him in his place. This is Jesus being tender to a wounded doubter. So he's not berating Thomas, not using him as an example, not, not saying, how could you doubt Thomas? Come on, don't you know what real faith looks like? Instead, he gives Thomas what he asks for, which is also what he needs. There's nothing wrong with that. He proves to Thomas that he really is the suffering servant who has risen from the dead. He acknowledges that there's a sense in which what he's looking for, what he wants to see, yeah, Stronger faith could have believed it without sight. And there's a blessing for those who do. But what he is wanting to see is the gospel. Now, theoretically, the resurrected body of Jesus could have been scar-free, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a possibility. Augustine acknowledges this possibility and explains why God kept the scars in Jesus' body. He says, he kept the wounds that they might be touched by the by the doubting apostle, and so that the wounds of his heart might be healed. And the same could be said for the other apostles, not just Thomas. They also needed to see the wounds of Jesus. So Jesus is showing Thomas how much he loves him by meeting him exactly where he is, right? He he shows Thomas that he loves him by giving him the desire of his heart. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It didn't have to be a perfect delighting in, you know, with a faith that is, uh, has reached perfection, but a true delighting in. And God gives you the desires of your heart when you're delighting in him, when your heart is on him, when you're stayed on him. And Thomas's greatest delight is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still believing. Thomas wants more than anything to encounter his crucified and risen Lord. He wants to believe it's true. And in verse 27, Jesus, the Lord, gives him the desires of his heart. He hears Thomas's cry and gives him an answer. Did you know that Jesus hears your cries that come from imperfect but real faith? You need to know that. You need to know that he meets you where you are in your walk with him and then brings you to the next step. He's already brought you to where you are and he meets you there and brings you to the next step. He doesn't look down on you when you come to him with your confusion and your questions. 
The key, though, is that you come to him with your confusion and your questions. There's no virtue in doubting for the sake of doubting. There's no virtue in, in being skeptical for the sake of being skeptical. There's no intellectual virtue in you know, putting a question mark at the end of every proposition or truth claim. But when you bring your doubts, even your demands, to God, trusting that those doubts, those requests, trusting that they will somehow be resolved in the person of Jesus and the one who died and rose for you, your Lord and your God, then you come in faith. And Jesus always gives himself, listen to what I said there, he always gives himself to those who come to him in faith, including imperfect faith. He may not give you an answer that rationally explains all of, the, all of your questions, all of life's mysteries, right? But he will give you himself just as he gave Thomas himself. If your heart's desire is Jesus, he will always fulfill that desire. You may have to wait for heaven to get some questions settled in your mind rationally and, and things like that, some mysteries resolved. But God always gives himself. And it's, it's, it's really amazing that we characterize Thomas as a doubter primarily. You know, that's, that's the characterization he gets. Because after Jesus presents his wounds to him, Thomas makes perhaps the greatest confession in all of Scripture. Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, proving himself to be maybe the greatest theologian of, of the 12. Thomas finally grasps the fullness of who Jesus is. He's Thomas's Lord and Thomas's God. His God is the God who entered into our suffering. Now, Thomas doesn't come to this conclusion because he has witnessed the kind of logical or scientific evidence that is demanded by those, those modern skeptics like, like Russell or Dawkins or Harris or Hitchens. No, Thomas believes that Jesus is God because why? <laughs> because he got to put his finger and his hand into the wounds. That's why. You see the difference between what Thomas wanted slash needed and what unbelieving skepticism wants, thinks it wants and needs and what will satisfy it? Big difference there. Modern skeptics are not persuaded by the wounds of Jesus, even if he showed up and showed them to them without a change of heart, without a new birth. The scars are a stumbling block to unbelievers. The cross is foolishness to those without faith. But to Thomas, a man of faith, the scars are evidence that Jesus is God in the flesh. The story is a little bittersweet, though, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's great. It's a, it's a great story. But it's a little bittersweet because 
at the end of the day, while, while Thomas got to see and touch Jesus, you know, he got what he wanted, we haven't, we don't. You know, we're still in, the, we're still in Thomas's old shoes. It, it's, hard, it's hard not to feel as though we're being left out. You know, we're on the outside still. So uh, Thomas got what he desired, but I haven't. He got to experience Jesus by sight and by touch, but I still haven't. I only experience Jesus, I encounter Jesus by faith, right? And I don't, not with my eyes. I'm still stuck in, in, in Thomas's old shoes, and so are you. And so what does this story really have to teach us? I mean, is it just, is it just rubbing it in our you know, faces that we're, that we're not like Thomas? <clears throat> What's Jesus saying to you and me? Actually, it's at this point in the story that Jesus looks past Thomas over his shoulder to those of us standing behind Thomas who can't see. We're dying to Thomas to get out of the way so we can see, right? Um, but he looks over Thomas's shoulder and he speaks directly to us. Look at verse 29. Remember, Thomas has just confessed, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So who's, who's Jesus talking about here? It, at this point, everyone on the earth who believes has seen. There's no one who's believing in Jesus and yet has not seen him. So who is Jesus blessing here at the end of verse 29? Well, it's you. It's me. Jesus is, is looking past Thomas to you and me, and he's saying, I'm also blessing you. There's a blessing here for you. We're not Esau's, you know, the, you know like you know, Jacob got the, the blessing and there's none left for Esau, right? So Thomas got to see and there's no blessing for us. No, there's a blessing for you. I'm not leaving you out. In fact, there's a special blessing for you here. Jesus knows that you desire the exact same thing. Which one of us hasn't wished, even prayed, for God to show himself to us in a tangible and physical and visible and undeniable way? And he can do that if he wants. But most of us haven't had anything like that. Certainly not visible and tangible we're, we're, but we're, we're all like Thomas we want to touch Jesus we want to see him we want to feel him we want to sense his presence in a palpable way that, that, that removes any doubt that, any, that removes all doubts about his existence about his goodness about his undying love for us so right now, you and I see in a, in a glass darkly. Our situation isn't ideal. We long for the day when our faith will be turned into sight, like Thomas's did. But Jesus says that there's a blessing for us in this less than ideal situation right now. And so we should stop reading verse 29 as, as if Jesus is scolding Thomas for wanting to see and touch the scars. 
There's nothing wrong with wanting to see. We were made to see. And we'll get to see. We'll, we'll get to look at Jesus for all eternity. Remember, don't forget that the same John who wrote this gospel wrote, the first, wrote an epistle and he makes a big deal in that epistle, that letter about being able to see and touch Jesus. Listen to the opening verses of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Okay, we saw him. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, who was with the Father, and has appeared to us. You know this vision language? We proclaim to you what we have seen. It just keeps going. And heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to see and touch Jesus, as Thomas and John and others did. Seeing and touching is actually the goal. We'll get to do it someday. There's a blessing for us that's await, that, that awaits us. But while we wait for our Thomas moment, if we want to call it that, there's a blessing for us now. A blessing straight from the lips of Jesus for you in this less than ideal situation. A special blessing. As you wait for your Thomas moment, Jesus blesses you as long as you believe in him. Thomas experienced this blessing for a week before Jesus rose from the dead. You and I get to experience this blessing for a whole lifetime. It's a blessing that only exists while we are still in this world, in this life. We can and should, though, look forward to the blessing of seeing and touching Jesus. But the blessing we receive now is by faith, apart from that sight. And it's a real blessing, and it's a special blessing. And that's the point of this verse, is the blessing, not the criticism of Thomas. Well, we've come to the climax of John's gospel. And here on the heels of this confession and on the heels of this blessing from Jesus, John writes as a pastor to his readers, verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And John knows which one they are. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that Believing you may have life in his name. So by trusting Jesus, by believing in his name that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, by confessing with Thomas that Jesus is your Lord and your God, you too can experience the life that Thomas experienced. So John is giving us the same kind of access, the same life that Thomas had. It's almost as if he is saying, you, um, you can see now too, right? You're, you're actually seeing. That's, that's one of the things that John wants to do is he's painting a picture with words for us to see what Thomas saw. So it's not as if we're 
looking, trying to look past Thomas and we can't see, we need him to get out of the way. John, the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us so that we can see what Nicodemus saw. So the wounds that Thomas touched are for you as much as they are for Thomas. The crucified Savior is your Savior as much as he is Thomas's. The cross that Jesus took up saves you just as much as it saved Thomas through your faith. And so I want you to leave here today knowing that Christ meets you in your grief. And he meets your grief with grace. And it's grace that flows from the cross. It's grace that's there because of the wounds, because of what the wounds represent. Jesus is not a criticizing Christ. So get that out of your head. Get, Jesus is not a criticizing Christ. He wasn't criticizing Thomas. That's not the point here. And he, and he doesn't criticize you. He meets you where you are. He hears your prayers, even your inarticulate ones in detail. And he is inclined to help. He's inclined to help not beat you down. So when you, like Thomas, desire Jesus above all, it, yeah, you're confused. There's mixed stuff going on in there. Your faith isn't perfect, but you're wanting Jesus. You're wanting it to be true. You're wanting his promises to be true, and, and you desire, and you do believe, and you're asking God to help, help my unbelief. When you desire Jesus above all, when you're, when you're wanting to encounter Jesus, he will grant you that desire. He will grant you the desire of your heart. And he will give himself to you in ways that you wouldn't believe possible. Let's pray. Lord, God, we are so grateful that there's a blessing for us that you have died for us and that you meet us in our grief just as you met Thomas in his and you meet us with the grace of the cross. Please continue to bless us as we believe, as we trust in you and help our unbelief. Cause us to grow in our faith and in our following of Jesus, in our cross-bearing. And Lord Jesus, we are eternally grateful that you did die for us, that you do have scars because you are the suffering servant who came to save the sins, to save his people from their sins. Help us this week to walk in your goodness, in your love, and in your grace, and to know how much you delight in us, and then to delight in you in return, more than we delight in anything on this earth, anything in this world. Help us. Hear our, hear our thanksgiving, and help us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.